feel uh, a little cheated in life because I will never be able to experience the thrill of river rafting. Um, my only experience has scarred me forever. I had been a pastor at the uh, Presbyterian Church in Weed, California for about eight months. And a neighbor of ours who was a local Baptist pastor uh, invited me to raft part of the Sacramento River with a person in his church who had just become a guide, a river guide. Our only child at the time, Bronwyn, was about nine months old, and so Andrea was going to stay home with her. And I thought, great, yeah, I would love to go. I'd, I'd always heard about how fun river rafting was. Well, what I didn't know is that we were going to be a paddle crew, which essentially meant that we the, were, with our paddles, supposed to control the boat. Well, it was myself, Joe, the other pastor, the brand new guide, and six children. Uh, yeah, you, you're, you're getting the idea already. And they weren't even teenagers. These were kids. On top of all of that, the river was running with more volume of water than in decades. And this was our guide's first solo trip. To wrap this story up quickly, it didn't go well. No one got injured physically, but by one point, the boat had flipped, we had lost everything in the boat, and six of the oars. So we had three oars left and we weren't even through the worst part yet. And there's no way out. It's, it's just this steep canyon you got to go through. <sighs> In the years since that experience, every time someone has suggested that we should go river rafting, I get a knot in my stomach, and even thinking about it. And I couldn't understand why it is that people like this, why people enjoy river rafting so much. What I've learned since is that most people who go river rafting, at least for the first time, do not go as part of a paddle crew, especially a paddle crew of children. Most people, at least intelligent ones, go with a guide who has control of the raft. And I'm pretty sure that if my first experience had been in a raft, completely controlled by a competent guide I trusted, I would have had a great time. If I started to get worried, I could just take a look at the guide's face, and if they looked worried, then maybe I'd get worried. But if they looked calm, I'd be fine. I'd just go with the river flow. I used to do something similar when I went through a phase of uh, uh, f fear of flying. You know, you'd go through something, and I'd look at the, the flight attendants. And if they looked scared, then I knew we were in trouble. But if they were fine, I'd like, okay, they've done this before. I can, I can relax. Our story uh, for this morning from Exodus reveals some similar dynamics in that Moses is facing a frightening situation. He is supposed to go tell 
the cruel and overwhelmingly powerful king of Egypt that the Pharaoh needs to release the entire Israelite population from slavery and let them leave Egypt forever. When Moses looks at himself for the courage to fulfill this mission, his panic only worsens. Instead, God tries to get Moses to look at God as the one who is in control. And this story reveals for us a truth that is attested to over and over and over again in the Bible. And that is that our strength for enduring fearful situations arises when we concentrate our focus away from ourselves and concentrate our focus on God instead. For those of you who have been here over the weeks, uh, we've already seen Moses express his hesitation, his fear to God a couple of times leading up to this point. Uh, After first hearing what God wanted him to do, Moses said, who am I to do that? And God says, I will be with you. Then Moses said, well, what if the Israelites don't believe in me? And God said, tell them Yahweh sent you. So that's the pattern. Moses says, essentially, look at the situation, God. Look at me. I can't do this. And God answers, you're right. You can't do this, but you won't be doing it. I will be doing it. So look at me. Well, as our story begins this morning, Moses is still not over his fear. Again, he says to God, what if they don't believe me or listen to me even when I say Yahweh has sent me? They say, the Lord did not appear to you. Is Moses really worried about others not believing, or is he still mostly just questioning himself? Either way, God adds some tangible, immediate signs to try to assure Moses and everyone that God is with him. And that's when we hear about the the staff that he throws down and it turns into a snake and then he grabs it by the tail and it becomes a staff again. He puts his hand into his cloak and pulls it out and it's, it's, the Hebrew says leprous. Uh, Most scholars think that it's probably psoriasis. As someone who suffers psoriasis, I can tell, yes, it's not very pleasant at times. But uh, then he puts it back in his cloak and pulls it out and it's completely healed. And then the third sign, of course, is he takes a a bucket of water from the Nile, pours it out onto the ground, and it's blood. Those are the three signs that God gives to Moses to assure Moses and everyone else that God is with him. And each of these acts are symbolic at several uh, several levels. The first sign includes a shepherd's staff and a snake. The shepherd's staff represents the humble life of the Israelites, uh, a sheep herding peoples. Um, And also it represents the humble life of Moses himself. We know uh, he's been a shepherd for years now. The snake is actually a symbol of Egypt and the power of Egypt, specifically the cobra. So the sign revealed that is that the God of the God 
had complete control over even the God of the Egyptians. That most bent to Yahweh's control. The second sign represents Yahweh's power over death and life. Uh, when Moses puts his hand in and pulls it out, uh, it's a sign not so much of immediate death as much as a withering away of life and health. It wasn't fatal, but it was certainly a, a representation of um, moving towards death and uh, social iso isolation. But it also shows God has the power not only to take away vital life, but to return it, to restore it as well. And several commentators say that was what was really special about this particular sign. There was a lot of belief that gods of all sorts could, could take away life. But it was highly unusual for uh, any gods of the peoples to be able to restore life to heal so completely and so quickly. So this was a, a sign that, that the God of the Hebrews was more powerful than other gods. The third sign is the only one that God does not teach Moses how to reverse. Turning a bucket of Nile water into blood and pouring it on the ground. And I think that God may have figured that if the people hadn't believed based on the first two signs, the intensity level for the third sign had to be amped up a bit. John Calvin writes, uh, heaping up the measure of overflowing, God added a third sign from whence Moses might attain full confidence. We know how many and various were the advantages the Egyptians derived from the Nile. In a word, Egypt attributed the chief part of its prosperity to the Nile. But now God gives a warning, not only that it should not profit the Egyptians, but it was in God's power to turn all its advantages into injuries. So, after all that, we might think that Moses would be ready for the challenge. Ready to face his challenge, but no. Moses said to the Lord, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past or even since you've shown up, essentially. I am slow of speech and of tongue. This verse has become fascinating for me. I have always thought, because it's what I was told, uh, taught, I guess, and what I've read and heard, I've always thought that this was Moses proclaiming that he had some sort of a speech impediment. Uh, specifically, most often it's been said that uh, they think that Moses had a stutter. I even repeated that uh, idea a few weeks ago in a sermon. Now I don't believe that that is true. For me, Douglas Stewart makes a very persuasive argument. He believes that this is Moses following an ancient Near Eastern custom expressing humility. This is what Stuart writes. Moses was not speaking literally here, but figuratively, responding to a great assignment with the proper sort of exaggerated humility and self-effacement expected 
and valued in his culture. There's no evidence anywhere in the Bible that Moses had any lack of skill in speech, public or private. And in fact, there is overwhelming evidence to the contrary. So when, Moses, when God follows up this protest from Moses with this line, verse 11, who gave human beings a mouth? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Stuart adds, the fact that God also cited his control over human ability to hear and see issues not in dispute, since Moses did not claim to have any hearing or vision problem, shows that it is more a general encouragement for Moses, his protest having been figurative rather than literal. Throughout the entire rest of the book of Exodus, throughout the book of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, Moses does a lot of talking. His, uh, and his slowness of speech or heaviness of mouth is never mentioned again by anyone. So for us this morning, I think this highlights even more so Moses' fear when focusing on himself and a, another attempt for him to come up with some sort of an excuse not to do what he's being called to do. Either way, God again speaks to Moses' fear by saying, I will go, I will help you. Oh, he says, now go. I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. Again, I will be with you. Finally, Moses just comes straight out and says it. Verse 13, Lord, please just send somebody else to do it. That's what he's been after the whole time. And for the first time, we read that God gets upset, gets a little angry with Moses. But even still, God sticks with Moses and reassures him. He says, what about your brother, uh, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you. He comes up with this alternative. More importantly, God again urges Moses to concentrate his focus on God. In verse 15, you shall speak to Aaron and put words in his mouth. And I, God, will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. Even God's final instruction to Moses serves as a way to keep Moses' attention fixed on God. Verse 17, he says, Remember, take this staff in your hand so you can perform miraculous signs with it. The signs that God has given to Moses to reassure him that God is with him and God is in control. So by now this pattern has been repeated enough times that we can see it clearly. Moses is given this frightening work to do on behalf of God for the benefit of an oppressed people. Moses looks at himself. He feels completely inadequate and his fear is worsened. Moses looks at the fickleness of God's people, the ones he's supposed to help, and his fear is worsened. Moses looks at the overwhelming power of his enemy, the Pharaoh, and his fear is worsened. 
And God says every time, concentrate your focus on me. I will be with you, always. We don't hear it exactly in our story for this morning, but it seems that uh, it finally got through, the message finally got through to Moses because uh, the next action in the story is Moses telling his father-in-law that he will be returning, Moses will be returning to Egypt to carry out the work that God has given him to do. As happens so often, I find our current circumstances as a people, as a society, resonating significantly with our story this morning from the scriptures. We are facing a number of our own fearful situations as a society and as a world. A planet warming to increasingly devastating consequences. Wealth and power accumulating in in greater and greater proportions to a tinier and tinier number of mostly white men determined to lock in their privilege at the expense of millions of others. As individuals and families, we have our own share of fearful situations looming in our lives. Illnesses from causes known and unknown. Bills coming due. Relationships needing repair. When we concentrate our focus on ourselves, our limited abilities, our resources, our experiences, most of the time our fear only increases. When we concentrate on our problems, on the overwhelming resources of those things against us and the relentlessness, our fear generally only worsens. So just as with Moses, God again and again tells us, concentrate your focus on me. Concentrate your focus on all of God's resources, all of God's power, all of God's wisdom. Know, as God says over and over again, I am with you always. Sometimes uh, this type of encouragement can seem trite. Don't focus on yourself, on what gives you cause to fear. Focus on God. And depending on from whom those words are spoken, it can be trite. But when the words are spoken from those who have lived experience with this truth, it can make a profound difference. In his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, James Cone expresses numerous times that a major reason that African Americans in the United States have continued to have hope, even through slavery, Jim Crow, and lynching, It is because of their ability to concentrate their focus on God, on God's presence in their suffering through Jesus' own lynching, on God's promise of justice and a better world to come. As one example, uh, Cohn points to this faith in relation to the story of Ida B. Wells, a prophet similar to Moses in the early 20th century. Let me read just a portion of this. 
He writes, Wells was the first to put her life on the line for the anti-lynching cause. Quote from her, With me it is not myself nor my reputation, but the life of my people, which is at stake. She wrote, responding to an interview by Frances Willard of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Moderation is not a virtue when, in quotes, men, women, and children are scourged, hanged, shot, and burned. It may be unwise to express myself so strongly, Wells wrote in her diary, expressing her outrage at the lynching of Eliza Woods of Jackson's Tennessee. But I cannot help it, and I know if capital may not be made of it against me, but I trust God. Cohn continues, what is it that gave Wells the courage to risk her life for others she did not even know? What gave her the audacity to proclaim the truth in an era when women were not even expected to speak in public? The answer is found in her faith, inherited from her ex-slave parents and the African-American church community. It was a faith defined by the cross and the black cultural resistance to white supremacy. Over and over again, Cone cites examples of the African-American church community concentrating their focus on God, especially in Jesus Christ, on God's power and God's love and God's justice in order to find strength and hope to keep going. So it's one thing for me to say, as we face fearful situations or fearful people, concentrate our focus on God. It has far more depth and weight to hear similar expressions from Ida B. Wells and James Cone. And this morning, even more so for us as followers of God and God's people, this is what I believe we hear from God through this story of Moses. Our strength in fearful times comes from concentrating our focus not on ourselves or even on the situation, but concentrating our focus on God. Amen.